Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Hey, good morning, everyone. Those are very kind and gracious words that I'm not deserving of. And I would tell you um, my interaction with Bryce, seeing a young man with the zeal that he has for, for God and for his word, for the glory of Christ, uh, that encouragement is so mutual, brother. And uh, we've just been delighted, Tiffany and I, getting to meet Michaela and to uh, see their kids, their growing family, and it's been a real blessing. We rejoice in how the Lord has raised Pastor Bryce up here, how he's using him here, and uh, just a lot of mutual encouragement. So thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I want to do a few other points of introduction before we open up God's Word, and um, we're going to be speaking about missions this morning. I know the typical missionary giving the missionary message. Um, uh, I think there's some good encouragement that I'd like to charge you with, and hopefully it will be a time, prayerfully, by, by God's grace, it will be a time that brings both clarification and a charge to the church to renew our zeal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in that spirit, I want to just again, as we've several have already acknowledged, I want to acknowledge the mothers here today. You know, we're all familiar with the passage in 2 Timothy, um, speaking of Timothy's upbringing and his, his mother and his grandmother and the influence they had. And I'm thankful as my wife and I have gotten to know a number of you uh, over the years here, being from this, the same community, um, I know there are a number of missional mothers and missional grandmothers here. And while motherhood is a, a phenomenal um, responsibility and, and one, of the, one of the greatest responsibilities on the face of our planet, missional motherhood, I think, supersedes that even. And uh, so I, I just want to honor you mothers because you have a great God-given role and God is using you. I just want to encourage you to press on in that ministry that God has given you. Also, I just want to say thanks to you as a church for partnering with us. Uh, it's a blessing to be back, and you're probably like, when are these missionaries to China actually going to get back to China? <laughs> and so we're wondering that too. Uh, but the, the timeline is, is uh, becoming more and more clear, and we're really excited. So I'll give you a quick update. But first, if I can just, again, extend a heartfelt thanks um, for your love and your care and your generosity for bringing us before God's throne of grace uh, in prayer. Uh, we've had the opportunity to come and sit in on the mission committee, to sit in on some small groups, to sit in on, on some of the prayer meetings that you've had. And I want to tell you how much of a blessing you guys are to us. Um, I, I, I know all of our partner churches pray for us, and they, they bring us before uh, the Lord in these ways, but I, I know how you guys are doing it. And you guys are going above and beyond, and this is more than just a, a monthly meeting. You guys are doing it regularly, and there's fruit of that, as we see as we walk through the halls, and even sometimes faces that, that we don't recognize, but you come up and you ask about situations like my father-in-law, and very, very detailed situations. I want to tell you how much of an encouragement that is to us. Um, and so may God continue to bless you guys as you uh, keep, it's, it's not about us, right? It's about the gospel. And by putting missionaries at the front of your church in this way to pray for them, uh, to uphold them, uh, is a very important thing because this is the, our purpose on earth. Amen? Our purpose is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you guys are doing that. So I just want to commend you uh, and encourage you to keep on that, that noble task. Um, so as we open up God's word today, uh, I want to start with a, uh, an introductory story here. It was in early June of 2019, 
and uh, we were uh, on the student visa in mainland China, and I had just started a photography tourism business. As you know, you can't serve in China openly on any kind of religious worker visa. And so uh, I, God had led to open up this photography tourism business, a unique uh, kind of opportunity that, that was not in competition with locals and would allow us to travel into minority areas more freely. And, and, uh, but in order to do that, I had to change my visa. And so uh, after a, a whirlwind trip through Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia on some field conference visits, we uh, brought the family back to China and I took off for Hong Kong. And uh, I know, as dizzying it was for us. <laughs> and so I took off to Hong Kong, and for a week I, had, I just walked around the streets. I met a number of uh, missionaries and national pastors while I was there, while I was waiting for um, uh, the consulate to change my visa over to an employment visa. Um, I talked with a national pastor who uh, shared with me how uh, the Hong Kong citizens, the Chinese in Hong Kong, were going through a bit of an identity crisis. Because they are Chinese. Hong Kong belongs to China, and they know they're Chinese, but, but they also know of their democratic system and how the freedoms that they had were different than the mainland. And there was a bit of tension. In fact, I felt that tension as I would speak Mandarin in Hong Kong, which they're primarily Cantonese speakers, but some can speak Mandarin as well. And as I would speak Mandarin, I could tell it wasn't received as well as it was in mainland. It wasn't received as well as it was in, in Thailand and uh, in Malaysia and those places. And, and uh, so this pastor began to tell me how they're having this identity crisis, and it's a real struggle. You know, I think our nation has been having an identity crisis in recent years, haven't we? Everything from not my president on both sides of that aisle um, to gender confusion, gender distortion is probably a more accurate way of saying it. We have a lot of identity crisis going on in our nation. You know, I think when we center around this topic of gospel mission, I think there's a bit of an identity crisis that's taking place as well. An identity crisis around what is a missionary? If I pay it forward in the drive-thru, am I a missionary? If I open the door for someone and show kindness, am I a missionary? And if I follow Francis of Assisi and preach the gospel always and when necessary use words, am I a missionary? <laughs> well, I hope to bring some clarity to that very thing today and to clarify our identity in Christ around this idea of gospel mission. Is everyone really a missionary? Everyone who names the name of Christ. I hope to answer that question. We'll let God's word answer that question today. Let's open up in a word of prayer and we'll, we'll dig in. God, we want to thank you so much for the great privilege and joy that it is to be here. God, I thank you for this church family and this partnership that we have together in the gospel. And God, I pray that your blessing would continue to be upon this work, both locally and there Jerusalem, that they would be a light of your glory and of your grace. And to the far reaches of the earth as they partner with us and with others who are bringing the gospel to the nations. God, your heart is for the nations, that they would know you. And so, God, we pray that, that your blessing on this partnership would open up doors across the earth uh, so that your gospel might be proclaimed. But, God, we thank you for this, um, this task that is before us today to answer this question, what, it, what is a missionary? What does it mean to be obedient in the gospel? And so, God, we first just want to thank you that you have called us by your glory and by your grace in Jesus Christ, who has died and risen again so that we might have everlasting life, so that we might be given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And God, what a great privilege it is to belong to you. But God, we don't just belong to you. You have called us not just to be sons and daughters, but to be servants. And you've given us a great opportunity 
to serve you in a variety of ways as we team together around what Jesus has done. So God, um, this morning, may you bring clarity to our role, our individual role and our corporate role together as a local church body, um, what our role is in the gospel. God, may you reignite that passion for proclaiming this good news, this great news that we have, that there is salvation in no other name uh, given among men uh, except that the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Acts today. If you want to open up to Acts chapter 1. And as you're opening there, I want to, I want to tell you the, the end of the message before I even begin. So if you have to leave early, you can have your notes and you can know what the message is about. <laughs> but I'll give, you, I'll give you the end here. There, there are essentially three views about what is a missionary. What is a missionary? How would we define what is a missionary? Uh, there are essentially three views. The first view is we're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is a missionary. And we'll, we'll unpack some scriptural support for that as well. Others might say, well, if you're supported to serve uh, the Savior on a special assignment, that's a lot of S's there. <laughs> but but if, you're, if you're supported in some unique way, perhaps outside of your local church ministry in your local community or beyond, but the churches have partnered together to support you to send you on a special assignment, that makes a missionary. There are others who would say, only if you're church planning. If you're planning a church somewhere, then... Uh, that is the, that is, those are the only missionaries that exist. Well, there may be some merit in each of those, and we want to look to God's Word to define really what is a missionary. Looking at the life of the Apostle Paul will help clarify those things for us. And um, yeah, and I'm just realizing I never gave you my update on our travels. <laughs> it's amazing how those little things can distract your mind a little bit. Will you forgive me and let me detour because I know you're eager to hear these things. So, so you've been praying for us about getting back to China. And just as a, as a quick update, we are heading this Wednesday to the South Pacific, to New Zealand, to Australia, and to Fiji, suffering for the Lord uh, out in those places. <laughs> oh, we're really grateful that, that God has seen fit to send us. You know, we're going to be gone for six weeks, and so that's not exactly a time frame that we can leave the kids at home. And so we're taking our whole family for that trip. We're going to be visiting 13 different missionary units in three countries over six weeks. We'll be on 12 different airplanes in five different rental cars, five different houses, eight different hotels. And you know how it goes, right? Just all, it's kind of dizzying like that. But we're really grateful for the opportunity. Pray that we'll be able to be some kind of Barnabas to these missionaries as we provide care and counsel, as we go on survey trips and just a variety of things, speaking at field conferences, preaching in some of their churches. Um, pray that God might use us to encourage his people and his servants especially. Following that trip, though, we come back and we'll be finishing our visa process. Uh, the good news is China has been overwhelmed with visa applications. And because of that, they, uh, there's a delay in getting the appointment at the consulate to get the visa. And so what this means is that if I submit my passport, I have to wait for up to eight to 10 weeks with my passport locked in. And we can't do that with a South Pacific trip in, in the works. So we've had to postpone that until we get back from the South Pacific at the end of June. So pray for us. By the end of June, when we come back into the U.S., we're going to spend the next couple months applying. Several of you have been following our updates, and you know some of the complications of, of the timing of uh, our family getting those visas. But things are looking very positive. We're very encouraged, and um, we believe we have good potential to make it to, back into China by uh, late summer. And so rejoice with us in that. Keep praying. We thank you for that. 
And so just to segue back into this now, <laughs> we are serving a variety of missionaries in a variety of contexts because gospel mission is a team effort, amen? And it takes a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And some people are, are in front and, and some people are more behind the scenes and in the shadows. But God uses us all in unique ways. And, and I believe God's word can really define all of those roles that we have together. Starting in Acts chapter 1, we see the Acts version of the Great Commission in verse 8, a very familiar verse. I'm using the New American Standard this morning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. This verse, verse is such a treasure for, for us as God's people, isn't it? The reminder of this great commission that we have. But it's not just the reminder, it's not just the command, it's also a point of strategy for us to cross um, geopolitical boundaries, linguistic boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries. The gospel permeates all across the board in these things. And so we have this, this charge to bring the gospel in all of those arenas. But how did that happen? We as churches oftentimes, we're really good at thinking about our own Jerusalem, and we're really good about thinking about the remotest parts of the earth. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we can forget about the Judea and the Samaria. We can forget about those places that are close to us, that neighbor us. How did the gospel go to Judea and Samaria? Well, it's interesting. If you flip over to Acts chapter 8, someone has once said it took, took Acts 8-1 for Acts 1-8 to happen. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Isn't that interesting? It took Acts 8-1 for Acts 1-8 to happen. What was the vehicle that drove the gospel into Judea and Samaria? It was persecution. Persecution broke out and scattered the believers, except the apostles at this moment. In Acts chapter 8, we see this persecution being led by someone, being at first approved, but even, even being led. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made a lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. We see this man named Saul. Now to let you know where I'm going to be going, I'm going to spend the majority of our time looking at uh, a bit of a backdrop of Saul's life here uh, up until this point and how God eventually brought him into what we today call missions. Missionary, as you may know, is not a word in the Bible, right? It's not a word in our English Bible. In fact, uh, most acknowledge that the word missionary was first used in the late 16th, early 17th century uh, by Jesuits who used uh, the root Latin word for apostle, and they used that word to describe missionary, someone sent out on a mission. But this is not a, a word, so we have to be kind of careful how we use that word when we're talking about biblically defined roles in the gospel. Saul, we know quite a bit of Saul, right? Our New Testament is largely contributed by Saul. He grew up in modern-day Turkey. Now, for those of you who don't know geography well, I'm going to show you a map with my hand. <laughs> that will be memorable. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, you've got the nation of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then just to the south, under the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Egypt. 
Above Israel, you've got Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, and then Turkey kind of rolls around the top side of the Mediterranean Sea, and then you've got Greece and Italy, two peninsular countries. Those countries centered around the three shores of the Mediterranean Sea are where the majority of the scriptures, the stories, and God's word take place. It's remarkable how much happens in just that area, in that, that little horseshoe uh, across the Mediterranean Sea. Saul grew up in modern-day Turkey in a city called Tarsus of Cilicia. And Tarsus, it was down in that southern part of modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, right? It's, it's right above there. So he's a couple countries away. But it tells us in Acts 23 and verse 6 that he grew up in the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, Maybe you, your mind might be thinking, oh, he was like top-notch Pharisee. Well, I think so, but I think what that's telling us is he was a generational Pharisee. His father, his grandfather were Pharisees. He grew up in that, that lineage and that heritage. He was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was a Jew that was born outside of Israel. So he essentially grew up in a, in a Greek country. Um, but in the scriptures, it tells us that he studied under a guy named Gamaliel a rabbi named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel, we don't know a whole lot about. We see some in God's word, a few references to Gamaliel. Josephus' uh, records have some um, references to Gamaliel as well. Uh, but Gamaliel was a very well-respected rabbi, and we know this actually from Acts 5. Do you remember in Acts 5 when Peter and the apostles were preaching? They were arrested, the gates were opened, they got free, and they went out and they preached again, and they brought them in, and they said, we told you strictly you're not to be preaching. And you remember what Peter said? Peter said, we must obey God and not man. Amen? Isn't that, isn't that stirring, uh, those words? And so that's what they said. And, and all of the Jewish leaders were, were arguing and debating over what they should do with these men. And you remember Gamaliel. Gamaliel said, if this is of God, if this is of God, we won't be able to overthrow it. But if this is not of God, it's going to fizzle out, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. But you remember what was said there. That was Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a voice of wisdom. I think a wisdom that's quite appropriate for us today. When we try to discern movements that perhaps aren't initially clear, like what was recently touted as the Asbury Revival. How do we process that? And we can get on social media and we can see the debate and the arguing commencing over, over is this of God? Is this not of God? And perhaps... We could use Gamaliel's advice. If this is of God, we won't be able to overthrow it. It will be clear. I think there's some good instruction in that. Interestingly, though, um, Saul studied under Gamaliel. And from what we know about the rabbi's training programs, it's widely accepted that Saul would have been brought back into Jerusalem probably around the age of 13. So Saul grows up in modern-day Turkey, and then his parents take him down into Jerusalem, where he can study under Gamaliel at the age of 13. Saul had a, a great bit of training from a respected, from a reputable leader. And interestingly enough, in Acts 5, when Peter gave his defense, Saul was likely present there whenever Gamaliel said those words. Interestingly enough, Saul could have been present at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's very possible. As we look at Acts 3, it says Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. And he was dragging off men and women, women even, and putting them into prison. Saul was a religious terrorist. Religious terrorists need the gospel too, amen? 
They need the gospel too. God's grace is greater than the hardness of heart that we see in the most devout of religious terrorists. God's grace is greater. After Stephen's death, Saul was like a wolf after tasting his first drop of blood. Um, he had this insatiable appetite to pursue and press on and imprison any follower of Jesus Christ. He relentlessly sought to stomp out the fire of the early church throughout Israel. In fact, this word that is used here in, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, a great persecution, the word persecute, in the New Testament we have two words for persecute, and these words are, are, are really helpful uh, as we define and understand what really is persecution. The two words, one word means to, to squeeze in on, right? Picture a mob that circles around somebody and they just, they squeeze in on tightly, right? That's one of the words that's used for persecute. Another one of the words that's used is to chase after. And this is the word that's used in Acts 8.1. And in fact, this is so interesting because Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians and he said, but I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. You know that passage in Philippians chapter 3? That word press on is the same word for persecute. Paul, once a persecutor of the church, is now saying, I'm persecuting after Jesus. Again, think of the idea of chasing. I used to chase after the church, but now I'm chasing after my Savior. What a picture. What a picture of the transformation that happened in Saul's life. If you hear me referencing Saul and Paul, vice versa, these are one and the same. Saul's name, he was later referred to as Paul. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it as Saul for the time being until his name changes over later in Acts 13. Um, but Saul, Saul was zealous as an unbeliever. He was sincere. He was zealous for the word of God as he understood it, but he was deceived. He was deceived. He thought that by guarding the truth that he understood, it meant he had to exterminate opposing views. This is the same Saul that would later charge Timothy with guarding the deposit that was entrusted to him. In fact, the same Saul that told Timothy that even though he was imprisoned for the gospel and he said the gospel could not be imprisoned, this is the same Saul that was imprisoning the people of God for the proclamation of God's word. You see, God's word has not survived because of God's followers. Certainly God has used his people, but this is a spiritual work when the word of God says that it endures forever. God doesn't need man to perpetuate his truth. God is truth. And the Bible is the most attacked book in all of history. There have been no greater attempts to wipe out a piece of literature off the face of the earth other than what has been done for God's word. And yet God has preserved it for us in his mercy so that we might know him in his ways. Amen? That's a wonderful reality. So in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 9, we move along as we see the story of Saul's life unfold. In a dramatic encounter, our Lord confronts Saul with the reality of the darkness in his heart. In verse, starting in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and uh, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. 
And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. With all his knowledge of the scriptures, with his expertise with God's law and his passion for God, he up to this point had no realization that he had been living in a lie. But the mercy of God broke through and transformed and redeemed, made him a new creation in Christ. God's grace is enough. Amen. Paul, as Saul, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, thought that his good works, as our brother Mike was talking about in the song we were singing, thank you for the worship team in your ministry earlier. The songs were excellent. I especially love that Aaron Keyes song, I Am Not Guilty, I Am Not Broken, Great Truths. But as our brother Mike was mentioning earlier, it's not of works. And as a Pharisee, that was the mindset, was that you could earn God's favor and God's grace. That was Saul's mindset until this moment when he was confronted with the reality of the darkness in his heart and the only cure, the only source of redemption, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. I want to pause and just say, have you responded to the gospel call? The scriptures say that today is the day of salvation. The scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. And what is that word? It is the word that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And this is the gospel of our salvation. And I just want to ask if you're here today and you're without Christ, if you're on the live stream today and you're without Christ and you're uncertain about your salvation, can I encourage you to talk to Pastor Bryce, to talk to Mike, talk to myself, my wife, and there are a number of others, someone you trust who can open up God's word with you and show you how to be saved. It is by grace through faith alone and not of works, lest any man boast. This was Saul's conversion. This was the point at which God reached into his life to bring about his salvation. Now what happened afterward? Starting in verse 10, let's go down. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Damascus, mind you, is 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you find Jerusalem on the map in Israel and go 150 miles north, for, for reference, Louisville's about 100 miles away from here. And that 150 miles, if you're walking by caravan, would take about six days. That's how much in pursuit Saul was of Christ's followers, right? It wasn't just let's drive them out of town and chase them out of town. It's let's chase them until we find them, okay? That was Saul's mind. So he's up in Damascus now, and there's this man named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Do you remember Saul actually sought to get papers from the leaders to chase after and imprison? That's how thirsty he was for the blood of the saints. But the Lord said to him in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. You know, this is a great passage as well because Saul at this point did not know, the scriptures don't seem to indicate, that he was aware that he was a chosen instrument of God. 
You know, we often remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, as we've referenced uh, several times. But we often forget verse 10 that comes right after it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We see God's purposes even from before the very creation and foundation of the earth. Wow, who are we? Who are we that God would be mindful of us? God has this great and special purpose for Saul, his servant, to bear his name before the Gentiles. In verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Very humbling words. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at this very point of his conversion, being filled with the Spirit, you remember the story as something like scales fell from his eyes. He took food and was strengthened in verse 19. And for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately upon his conversion, immediately upon his conversion, he did what? He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And now this brings us to our first of three points. Many ask, and many will say, We're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. Kind of like a talk show host who might say, You get a car, you get a car, everyone gets a car, if you've seen those memes. So, speaking of gifts, if you'll um, look under your seat, you'll find there's nothing there. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> I apologize, I don't have gifts for you this morning. But you can, you can have those images come into your mind of the talk show host offering the gifts. And sometimes in, in modern day evangelical Christianity, it's thrown out, you're a missionary, you're a missionary, we're all missionaries. And it's thrown out in such a cliche way that, that for those who are more discerning, maybe we would pause and say, are, are we? Are we all missionaries? Well, I want to remind you what Paul did right after his conversion. He immediately began to proclaim Christ. Friends, if you're a new Christian today, you just trusted Christ in Sunday school class this morning as you heard the gospel, and now you know that you are a child of God. It is the will of God that you would proclaim Jesus Christ. Amen? This is a responsibility for all of us. Go hold your place and go to Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, we see the most concise um, version of the Great Commission call here. Mark chapter 16. If you're wanting to memorize the Great Commission for the first time, this is a great place to go. In verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It's so simple, isn't it? Go into all the world. According to Matthew's gospel, as you're going, that idea, as you're going, wherever God is bringing you, preach the gospel to all creation. Wow, what a great privilege it is. If we are to define a missionary as someone who has the responsibility to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can confidently say, according to the word of God, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ are missionaries. Amen? We can confidently say that. We should not be ashamed to say that. We should not be reserved to say that. If that is our definition, anyone who has the responsibility to proclaim Christ, then brothers and sisters, you and I bear this responsibility together. And we are a team together of people that God has chosen to preach good news. But there's more. What about these others then? 
Is there any merit to saying someone who's been supported for a special task has this responsibility as well? Or what about those who are just doing church planning? Well, let's bring some clarity to that. What happens next? Paul's friends at the end of chapter 9, I'm not going to read as, as much through here, but I'll, I'll show you the references if you want to search these out yourself. But throughout the remainder of chapter 9, um, Paul's friends and his colleagues, his partners in crime, they turned on him. They turned on him. And many of us can relate to this. I can relate to this. I first heard the gospel through a gospel tract when I was 18 years old. I was dating a, a young lady and her parents said, if you're going to date that heathen or, or pagan, I'm not sure what word they used, but you know, <laughs> you've got to give him a gospel tract and he's got to come to church. I'm not endorsing missionary uh, dating, ev evangelistic dating. I'm, I'm not intending to do that. But that gospel tract, God used that in my life. It was the first time I can recall hearing the gospel. I went home and I read it. Uh, thinking, oh, this is about God. Oh, she's a religious fanatic. And I went home and I read it. And little did she know or her family know that God had been preparing the soil of my heart for many months to come as I was reading my Bible on my own, our, our family Bible, and, and searching the scriptures and searching about other world religions. And I, I, I read through a Romans Road type of approach how I can be saved. God transformed my life at 18 years old. And, and I was so ecstatic to share that story with my friends. I went out to my friends because I thought all the darkness that we walked in, all the things we were running from, all the things we were searching for, I found the answer. I found the truth. And I went bearing that hope to my friends to find that it wasn't received so well. To find that Josh isn't fun anymore. We don't want to engage in the deeds of darkness together. We no longer had that fellowship in darkness that was once there. By the grace of God, we no longer had that fellowship together in the deeds of darkness. I was mocked and I was slandered. Some of you can relate to that, what that was like. This is a common story. And as you travel around the world and you hear of other brothers and sisters in Christ, and you hear their story. This is the cost of following Jesus. If they hated me, they will hate you. Maybe this is a response you faced as well, but I want to absolutely assure you if you're going through that right now that Christ is worth it. Amen? Christ is worth enduring through the mockery and slander and to be reminded that it pales in comparison to what our Lord faced for us. Saul, if you remember, he flees Damascus being lowered out of a basket out of the city, which is actually very instructive for us because as we consider missionaries' responses to persecution, Sometimes we think missionaries should never flee. They should stay and they should endure with the people. But you actually see examples of the Apostle Paul and others throughout the book of Acts where sometimes, like this story, um, Paul is being lowered out of a basket and fleeing from the risks and the threats of persecution. And other times, he is being told by prophets, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem. And he, he essentially says, don't make this already harder than what it already is. I know this is the will of God. And he goes with great boldness in the face of that persecution. I think there's encouragement to be gracious toward missionaries and the unique decisions that they have to make in their circumstances and to know that God is leading them and that they're seeking counsel and that they're, um, they're trying to make decisions according uh, to the will of God to the best of their understanding. Saul goes to Jerusalem and Barnabas enters the scene. Barnabas introduces Saul to the apostles and People are going, this is the same Saul that persecuted the church. People are uncomfortable. There begin to be plots against Saul's life. And you may remember that the apostles sent Saul, Paul, out of town, back to his hometown. 
Now, how would you feel about that kind of response? You're being persecuted in town, people are seeking after you, and your church is like, get out of here. <laughs> Go back to your hometown. Now, I don't think that was the intent, but the scriptures really don't indicate what the, the motivation was, but it appears that it was really um, an effort to preserve his safety, that it was out of genuine care for Saul as they sent him off back to Tarsus. And Saul goes back to Tarsus for some 10 years. Barnabas was introduced on the scene, and many of us know Barnabas uh, as being the, help me out here, the son of encouragement, right? Barnabas' name means the son of encouragement, and certainly he had this role to the saints in the church. But this is really special because Barnabas, many of us perhaps overlook what happened in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas had a tract of land. Before Barnabas was ever traveling and serving the Lord, Barnabas had a tract of land, and he went and sold it, and he brought that money to the apostles' feet, if you remember that story. Now, that's really special because what we think of Barnabas, we may think of him in more of a missionary role, where Barnabas was going with the Apostle Paul and, and serving him, planting churches and doing those things. But before Barnabas did that, he was this generous giver and sender in his local church. And God used him to supply the Apostle's needs before he would once become a companion of the Apostles. How precious is that? And what a great reminder it is to each of us that the role that we play in gospel mission right now is something that God may be using to very well prepare us for another season in the future. Barnabas has a very special role. The plan becomes known from these Hellenistic Jews to kill Saul, so they send him back. And then the rest of chapter 9, 10, 11, and most of 12 focuses on Peter. You remember the story of the sheet that dropped from heaven and the animals produced clean and that charge to the Gentiles, all those things. But Barnabas shows up again in the midst of these chapters in Acts chapter 11. And as we near uh, the last two points to move rather quickly through this, in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 22, it says this, The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, the church in Jerusalem, sent Barnabas off to Antioch, then, when they arrived and witnessed the grace of God, uh, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Barnabas was sent off on a special assignment to both serve the church in Antioch, but also to even bring back report to Jerusalem about what God was doing there. You see, there were many Greeks in Antioch, uh, being outside of Israel, and, and in Antioch, there were many Greeks there, but the people that God was using to minister to these Greeks were these saved Hellenistic Jews. I know that's a mouthful, but these Jews born outside in Greek territory, God was using them in those experiences to relate to the Greeks. I think that's instructive for us as well, isn't it? God has given us a each, each of us, a very unique background and a unique set of relationships, even in this very community. We might have overlap where we have mutual friends, but many of us reach into areas that are unique to each other. And that's what was happening in Antioch, as God was using people in the uniqueness of their background to minister to a demographic of people that were in this community. Barnabas goes and serves them and reports well, and he's there for a year, a one-year assignment. And while he's there, as we continue these verses, and uh, let me find my place again, uh, in verse 25, and he left for Sarsis, Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, in this very place. So Barnabas goes up, and he, 10 years later, a decade later, he's like, I remember this guy who's in Tarsus. <laughs> Let's go get him. It was actually very close. It wasn't that far away. And so he goes and gets Saul and he brings him back. And he sees something in Saul that he wants to reintroduce to the church there, to the brothers and sisters there. Time was such that now Saul had great freedom. And God used Saul and Barnabas in a mighty way here. And then we see in verse 25, uh, this was the assignment to go here. But we also see toward the end of the verse, uh, I'll, I'll just keep reading here, uh, in verse 20. Uh, seven. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did this, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Another special assignment now from Barnabas back to Jerusalem to send relief. Okay, so friends, if we were to define a missionary as someone who raises support on special assignment to serve the Lord, then absolutely, absolutely, Barnabas is a great example of this. But I want to go to the third point and, and conclude quickly. It's said that when you talk about conclusion, you instantly regain about 65% of the attention of the congregation. And <laughs> you are all great, though. Thank you. The third point is in Acts chapter 13, and this is foundational, and this is what I hope to leave you with. Very familiar verses for anyone in missions. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away, sent apoluo. So being sent out, ekpempo, a different word, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. In Acts chapter 13, we see something very unique. You know, we all know the word apostle. The apostle, apostle means sent one, sent out on a mission, sent out on an assignment. But we also know from Acts chapter 1 that there's an office of an apostle. And friends, church, I, I want to just charge you with this. There is no modern day apostle, amen? That simple statement can save you from a lot of heresy and false teaching. If you know that there is not a modern day apostle, if you have questions, I don't have time to unpack that now, but please come and, and talk to me and I'd be glad to share. But you can look at the end of Acts chapter uh, 1 at the, the last seven verses and you can see there's an office of the apostle with qualifications that cannot be met today. But there was a role of being sent that we see modeled and here what we see is not a calling of an apostle. Okay, Paul is an apostle here, but Barnabas is not. And Barnabas is being sent out as a co-laborer with Paul. Barnabas, who once was a sender of missions, who once was also sent out on special assignment, is now he himself being sent out with the very Apostle Paul. And you see a transition in ministry roles that God has for them. When it says that the Holy Spirit said set apart and the church sent them, that word sent means to be set apart or to be freed, to be released for ministry. The church was called, the church's responsibility was to release, to set apart and release certain servants for gospel work. But then when we see in the next verse, in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, it's a different Greek word. 
a different Greek word where we actually see a distinction, where there's now a calling. This is not just a local church initiative. This is now a calling by the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a distinction. And if somebody were to say to me, only church planners are missionaries, I understand where they're coming from. Because there is a distinction where the Holy Spirit does call and sets apart certain people for a certain and specific work that the church then is given the task to support them. So where is your role in this? Are you one that God may be setting apart for special cross-cultural ministry? Are you one that's sent on special assignment? Are you a follower of Christ who's been given the shared responsibility that we all have to proclaim the gospel? You know, that's between you and the Lord and your local church leadership. But I hope it can be defining in this. So I'll leave you with this last thought. What did they do when they were sent out? Verse 5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God. When they reached, they preached. That's what they did. When they reached, they preached. Brothers and sisters, if I can leave you with any encouragement this morning, I don't know what your role is. If the Holy Spirit is setting you apart for ministry, if the church is sending you on special assignment, or if you're just bearing the gospel to your neighbors and friends and family and coworkers and students, fellow students, whatever role has, God has given you, God has put you in a unique position to reach certain people. And where you reach, preach. I don't mean get preachy. I don't mean that, that mindset that often comes from that word. What I mean is unashamedly proclaim Christ.